I am Andrea Butcher, and this is Being at Work. Being a leader is hard. So on this show, I set out to talk with experienced leaders to learn from their pivotal moments, how they led through the challenges we can all relate to but are often unheard. Today's guest is Brian Ahern, the Chief Influence Officer at Influence People. An international trainer, coach, and consultant, Brian specializes in applying the science of influence and persuasion in everyday situations, something we all do every day, whether we realize it or not. Brian is one of only 20 individuals in the world who currently hold the Cialdini Method Certified Trainer Designation. This specialization in psychology of persuasion was earned directly from Robert Cialdini, PhD, the most cited living social psychologist on the science of ethical influence. Brian's passion is to help others achieve greater professional success and enjoy more personal happiness. He does this by teaching how to ethically move others to action using the science of influence. In other words, getting people to say yes. Listen in to hear Brian share specific strategies for how to do that in a non-manipulative way. Completely by chance, in in one sense. Uh, Sometimes I look back on big moments in life and you don't realize how certain decisions can be so pivotal. But for me, on this journey, there was somebody who had worked in my department. I used to work for an insurance company. And she came down and she gave a video to my boss and I. And I was involved with sales training. And she said, I think you guys will really like this. And it was Robert Cialdini presenting at Stanford. And this was in the early 2000s. And as I watched the video, the light bulb came on. I, I remember thinking, holy cow, this is the psychology that explains all the sales training we do. It's why it works. And so that intrigued me, given what I was doing with sales training. I really appreciated his approach that it was all research-based. This wasn't somebody's good idea or it worked for me, it could work for you. This was based on research. So I really felt like I could get behind that. And the third thing, which really ended up being the critical difference maker, was his stance on ethics. He was very clear about non-manipulative ways to get people to do things. So I started to use this video in some training. I'd go to our different offices and show the video for about 45 minutes. We'd talk about the concepts and think about how we might be able to use them in our business. Well, in the meanwhile, I had signed up for Stanford's marketing materials. And one day, one of their flyers comes across my desk. And I flip through it, and there's Robert Cialdini's picture. In bold letters, it says bestseller, and right underneath it in bold letters, call it influence, persuasion, or even manipulation. And I remember thinking, I cannot believe they used that word, because he was so clear in his delivery about non-manipulative ways. The person who introduced him talked about non-manipulative ways. So I thought, the copywriter must not have watched the video. But still, I couldn't imagine any copywriter thinking that using the word manipulation would be good. So I emailed Stanford. And I basically said in the email, I don't know anybody who wants to be manipulated. And I don't know anybody who wants to be known as a good manipulator. That one word cannot be helping your sales, but it really could be hurting. Well, some time passed and I never heard from Stanford. But a little more time passed by. And one day my phone rang at work. And it was a representative from Robert Cialdini's office. And she introduced herself and she said, I'm calling to thank you on behalf of Dr. Cialdini. You sent an email to Stanford. And because of that, they've changed the marketing of all our our materials. 
And I was like, wow, it's pretty neat. And we had this nice conversation. And, and she said, if your company is ever looking for a guest speaker, he travels the world and he talks about this. And I said, well, I sit next to the woman who books our events and our speakers. <laughs> would you like to speak with her? And as fate would have it, it was the summer of 2004. And he was in Columbus, Ohio, several times and addressed the insurance agents that represented our company. And I eventually went through the two-day workshop and then got certified. And for now a, a dozen years, I've been a representative teaching the principles of persuasion on behalf of uh, Dr. Cialdini. So had you heard of him and his work prior to that? No, I had not heard of Robert Cialdini prior to seeing the video from Stanford. And what's interesting is the book that he is so well known for, Influence, Science and Practice, had come out in the mid 80s, but didn't start gaining popularity until the late 90s. And that's when marketers and salespeople started to realize, like I did, hey, this is this explains the behavior to get people to the store, to get people to buy. And that's when he really took off. But prior to seeing the video in, I think it was 2001 or 2002, I had not come across his material. Well, clearly it had a big impact on you, so much so that you were compelled to reach out to Stanford. That says something. <laughs> yeah. And that's, for me, what I, what I appreciate about that story is when somebody tries to equate persuasion to manipulation, I can say, no, 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 no. If it was, I would not be doing what I'm doing today. We can move people to action in ways that are completely ethical and good for them. And we can feel good about ourselves too versus manipulators who really only care about themselves. Yeah. So how does it work? I'm so eager to learn more about the method. What Dr. Cialdini did was he synthesized decades of research into the area of persuasion. And really, as he kind of stepped back and, and looked at things, he said, you know, you can put most of the psychology that's in the literature into six categories of human behavior. And so he coined the term the principles of influence or sometimes the principles of persuasion. And that's where people could get their head around it. They didn't have to like look at the vastness of all the psychology. They understood what the principle of liking was or what reciprocity was. And you can go very, very deep into these principles and various applications and triggers. But, but on the surface, most people will get what I talk about because it's human behavior. And they'll either think, oh, that's why I responded that way to the salesperson. Or some people go, oh. That's why people respond to me the way that they do. I couldn't put a label on it, but this is why. And so people are, are very fascinated by it and the research that goes around it. Well, and you said the, the thing about it that has had such an impact on you is the non-manipulative ways. So tell us how that plays out. What does that look like? When we talk about the difference between manipulation and persuasion, Persuasion has three key components if we're talking about ethical persuasion. The first thing is, am I being truthful? And by truthful, I don't mean just telling the truth. We don't hide the truth either. Because if you were going to buy my home and there was a crack in the basement and there happened to be a rug over the crack, oh, well, you didn't ask me about it, so I didn't bring it up. That's, that's not ethical, right? So we, we tell the truth and we don't hide the truth. And the second thing is, we are looking for win-win situations. So it's got to be good for you. It's okay that it's good for me too. And I like to say, you know, good for you, good for me, we're good to go. Uh, if what I know I'm proposing is going to be in your best interest, and I, it doesn't matter then if I get paid a commission, if I know it's in your best interest, then I think that we're operating on an ethical plane. 
And the third thing that we talk about is we only use the psychology that is natural to the situation. And by that, I mean, there are some concepts that are so powerful that when people come in contact with them, it, it almost automatically spurs action. An example, scarcity. When you begin to realize something might be less available or the opportunity to get it is going away, people will tend to react in ways that they never would have before. And unethical people will bring that into their conversation by telling you things like, oh, Andrea, if you sign today, you can save 15%. But if I have to come back tomorrow, I can't give you that deal. And there's really nothing scarce there. And yet people still respond to it. So we talk about, you know, use psychology that's natural to the situation, create win-win opportunities, and be truthful in everything that you're doing. And I think if you do those three things, you can look at yourself in the mirror and know that you're operating in an ethical way. Well, and you said that you had been doing sales training when you were introduced to this method. What specifically changed for you in how you approach sales as a result? One of the things I learned a long time ago, it's very important to have a common language, especially within an organization, so that when you talk about things, everybody knows what you mean. When we began to incorporate all of this into our sales training internally and then eventually externally with insurance agents who represented the company, we began to to have a common language. We would say, okay, what does it mean to persuade? And rather than having you know 10 different people come up with 10 different definitions, we were able to settle on a, a definition. Then we were able to take the psychology and use that as the basis for why we were going to ask the salespeople to maybe start changing their behavior. Because when they realize, for example, that, oh, if we do X, Y, Z, that will engage the principle of reciprocity. Well, they've all been through training and they remember what reciprocity is and they've heard the studies and they know how powerful it can be to move people to action. So I think people got on board a lot sooner when that started happening. And then the other thing I will say happened early on when you're trying to create corporate change, you will get pushback like, oh my gosh, can't they do anything without talking about, and in my case, it was, can't Brian do any training without talking about that name Cialdini? And then after a while, they start to realize it's not going away. And then I had people start coming to me and they'd say things like, you've ruined me. Because now when I hear somebody talk about sales or something else, if they don't give me research to back it up, I don't want to hear it. And that's where we wanted to get people to, because they had so much confidence in what I was sharing because it was backed by data that they actually started to incorporate it. Tell us about some of the results. Like, what's, what are the outcomes of leveraging this? I mean, aside from the clear, like, I will persuade and influence the people that I'm trying to persuade and influence, what else have you seen? Most of the time when people go through training, there may not be any single individual who's going to have this huge impact on the organization. But for them personally, can I get the things done today that I need to? Can I get them done sooner and with less friction? That's where you really begin to see a lot of difference. So here's one very, very simple example. There was an IT guy, his name's Jim, and Jim had emailed about half a dozen of us to do something, and it was IT related. And I remember looking at the email and thinking, this looks hard. (laughs) So I did what most people would do, nothing. And then he emailed a while later, and he asked if we had finished it. And because he was a friend and I genuinely liked him, I thought, I better do this. 
So I went in, I followed his instructions, and it was really easy. So I emailed him, but I hit the reply all button. And I said, all done, that's easy. And he replied back to me and said, thanks. So I called him on the phone. I said, Jim, has everybody finished this? And he said, no, there's one guy left and he hasn't done it. And I quickly explained the principle of consensus that we tend to follow the lead of others. And I said, hit the reply all button to let everybody know that everyone's done except for the one person. And he'll feel the pull of the crowd to get his part of the assignment done. And so he did that. And seven minutes later, and I remember that specifically, seven minutes later, the other guy emailed back and said, consider me among those who've completed the task. For Jim, that was gold because he he checked it off. He moved on to the next thing. But I think when you look at the organization as a whole, if you start having wins like that all the time from everybody all day long, that's where you get tremendous momentum. Is that an example of what you were talking earlier about using psychology that's natural to the situation? Like that's a situation where you can use that pool of consensus? Absolutely, because six of the seven people had done it. And so to hit the reply all and for that other person to see all of those names and to realize I'm the only one who hasn't finished this, that's enough of that social pressure to get him to do what was needed. So yes, that was a natural to the situation. Now, where it wouldn't be natural is if somebody understood this and they replied back to that person and just said, hey, Joe, everybody's finished it except you, and really everybody hasn't, you know, then even though they have a good intent, they want Joe to do it, that's, you're, you're lying and you're not being ethical. And if Joe ever found that out, then he would really resist that person going forward. So it's the combination of those three things, right? The truthful, the win-win, because it is it is in his best interest to complete the task, right? I mean, there is something in it for him. And then the psychology. So it's the it's the combination of those three things. Absolutely. So those so those three things become a checklist to ethical persuasion. Right. If if something's if something's missing, you've got to stop and say, you know, if there's a principle you'd love to use but you can't, then go to something else. Maybe, maybe Jim could have said to Joe, hey, Joe, we've known each other for a long time. Remember last time you were doing this project and, and I helped you out? I really need your help here. Could you just stop what you're doing and finish this, right? So he's engaging a little bit of liking. He's engaging reciprocity. I've helped you in the past. And those are natural to the situation. So you have to think about which principles are naturally available. Then how do I bring them into my communication in a way that's going to hopefully trigger that other person to do what we need? Yeah, for some reason, the example that keeps popping into my head, let's, so that's a great example that really helps bring it to life. Let's look at a couple of other scenarios. What about something we can all relate to? I want my kids to clean their room and I've asked them to do it, but they won't do it. How can I ethically persuade them? Teach me, Brian. Okay. So the first thing I would ask you is, do you really ask your kids or do you tell them? It's definitely a tell. Clean your room. Okay, so there's a principle that we talk about called consistency. And consistency describes the feeling that we all have to want to live up to our word. We just feel better about ourselves when our words and deeds match. And we also know we look better to other people when our words and deeds match. So it's a very powerful driver because first and foremost, we want to feel good about ourselves. When you ask somebody to do something and they say they will, it triggers that principle. Because if they don't follow through, well, they're letting themselves down and they don't like that. And then also they have to look you in the eye and they've let you down. When you tell somebody what to do, for example, your kids, 
they have all kinds of outs. I didn't hear you. I was going to do it later. I've been busy. I was studying. They'll have all kinds of excuses for not having done it. So my advice to parents is always ask, don't tell, and then also give a time frame. So here would be an example. Uh, when my daughter was younger, when she was a teenager, it was not uncommon for my wife and I, in the hustle and bustle of the morning, my wife might say, Abigail, empty the dishwasher. And then we take off for work. Well, we could get home from work around 5, 5.30, and it's a good bet the dishwasher wasn't empty. And we might go to bed, and our daughter worked late and had different hours. We could wake up in the morning, dishwasher not empty. Now, you can imagine how that conversation is going to go between a mother and a teenage daughter. And the simple thing would have been, I would have said, Abigail, will you empty the dishwasher before you leave for school? And then I just pause and I look at her because she's going to answer the question one way or the other. She's going to answer that question. If she says yes, she's probably going to get on it and do it. If she said, no, dad, I'm in a hurry. I can't. Then I'd say, wait a minute. Will you empty it as soon as you get home from school before you leave for work? And almost every time she, yeah, yeah, I will. And then she would. So it wasn't as if it was a power play like, well, I asked you and you said, no, now I'm telling you. I had fallback positions. And I understand from psychology that when people say no to us, if we step in immediately with another request, the odds of them saying yes start to go up rather dramatically. So that's, that's the way I would handle that situation. Yeah. So I like, so it's a, so it's, it's a request. So you're naturally getting, getting their buy-in, but also I like the, I like the specificity. So it's almost like creating a smart goal in a way, right? What will you do? And by when will you do it? So it's the same thing for leaders. You know, a lot of our listeners are leading teams and driving towards results and performance. And so it's, it's getting results through others, which is getting others to do things and to follow through on commitments. So the same principles apply. That we could just change the scenario to, let's say, one of your listeners needs a report from somebody by Friday. Well, the worst thing you can do is say, uh, hey, Alice, I need the sales report by Friday because you're telling instead of asking. Now, if you ask and say, Alice, can you get me the sales report by Friday? That's a good step in the right direction. But what are you going to do if Alice says, hey, sorry, I, I can't. I'm too busy. Now you've got nowhere to go and you need that by Friday. So the smart person is going to say, Alice, can you get me the sales report by Monday? Because if Alice just reflexively says no, you've got fallbacks to Tuesday, to Wednesday, to Thursday. Now, the other thing that they would do too, because studies show using the word because significantly increases compliance, I would say, Alice, could you get me the sales report by Monday because I need it to finish the board report? Now we've brought in some authority. So that's psychologically such a different approach versus, Alice, I need the sales numbers by Friday. So there's a thoughtfulness about the words you use, for sure. Absolutely, because it's the words we use that convey thoughts and feelings and ultimately drive action. Well, and so much of the time, I mean, I, you know, I, I work with leaders every day who are frustrated by team members not following through on commitments. And the, you know, the, a lot of energy is, is, is towards the team member not doing it. But it's, this is making me think about how important it is for the manager to really reflect on, well, how are you influencing? How are you leading this individual? What are the words that you're using and trying to get him or her to, to do that? Because the frustration, when you, you use the word commitments, but again, I would love to see the interaction between the leader 
and the individual that they said had the commitment? Was it really a commitment on their part or was it something that was pushed on them as a priority for the leader? It's not to say that it's still not a priority, but how you're going to interact with that person to get them on board and do that, that's what makes the difference. That's what makes the difference. Yeah, that's good. Let's go a little deeper with that a leader team member connection. Because I, I know, Brian, there's also something about like the relationship in the work that you do and like how you care for people and what your perspective is on the relationship. So talk about how that plays out in getting people to follow through, getting people to say yes. I always encourage people to tap into the principle that we call liking. I mean, we all know, and I'm sure all of your listeners know, it's easier to say yes to people that we know and like. The mistake that people sometimes make is trying to get people to like them. So the leader who's trying to get the team to like him or her, really it should be the leader saying, I want to come to like, know, like, and trust the people who report to me. And so therefore, I'm going to make a concerted effort to find out what we have in common and and talk about that regularly. I'm going to go out of my way and look for ways to compliment people, genuinely compliment them. Those two simple factors will not only make their team like them, it will actually work on them to get them to like their team. Because, for example, the more I come to know about you and how we're similar, well, I also like people who are like me, so I start to like you more. And the more I find things I can compliment, well, I begin to think more highly of you because I'm seeing all these good traits about you. Now, here's the great thing about it. When you, if you were somebody on my team, when you really begin to sense, wow, Brian really likes me, you become so much more open to whatever I might ask. Because if you're like most people, deep down, you believe friends do right by friends. And because I do like you genuinely, I am looking out for your best interest. And what I'm asking of you is in your best interest. And so can you see how this becomes such a positive cycle? Most definitely. And and I love the focus on controlling what you can control because I certainly cannot control whether or not someone likes me, but my liking of that person is 100% within my control. Absolutely. I, I had a situation once at work where I was brought into a different area of the company. I was in the sales area. I was brought into the claims area because the chief claims officer really liked the psychology and believed in it. So he invited me to start working with some of the claims team. And the guy who headed up the claims training, uh, I could tell, was not happy about it. Sitting across from him in a meeting, he had a look that at least it conveyed to me, what the heck are you doing here? This is my territory. And then I was asked to go on the road with him for six out of like the next eight weeks. So I thought, great, now I got to spend six weeks with a guy who clearly doesn't like me. And so I had to apply all of this learning that I teach people. I had to apply it myself. And so I really began to go out of my way to connect with him, find out what we had in common. And by the time that eight weeks of travel were over, we got along fabulously. And he is one of my biggest supporters now. It was, it was great. And, and the really nice thing is it went beyond being a supporter. He is just a genuine friend. Yeah, this is really good. I was just having a conversation last week with a uh, coaching client who's really, she's, she's really struggling with her manager. And she actually said at one point during the conversation, I was like, I just don't, I don't connect with her. I just don't like her. And she's, she was very much focused on what she wasn't getting from her manager. And what I just heard you say is really like the best course of action there is her 
putting as much energy as she can into getting to know her manager, looking for commonalities, looking for shared values. I mean, that's, that's the best way to influence someone. I don't know anything about that relationship, but quite often when you hear what you're describing, that manager may be tough for other people too. It may not just be her. What I found with, with the individual I just described, that's how he was perceived by other people. But once I broke through, I thought, wow, I mean, he is smart. He's funny. We had a lot of things in common. And it's amazing how his demeanor towards me changed and, and that relationship grew. So for your friend to her manager to think, okay, it's not me. This person may be projecting this to a lot of other people, but I'm not going to let that stop me because I know that's still a human being. And the vast majority of people will come to like people that they see as similar to themselves and people who genuinely pay them compliments when they're deserved. Well, in that scenario, it's interesting you say that because in that scenario, she had gotten, so she's newer to this role. This manager is newer to her and the manager has a bad reputation for being overly demanding, overly critical. And so I, I do think that perception that she walked into the relationship with is, is, is holding her back from connecting. Like she, you know, at one point in the conversation, she said, well, that's just how she is. You know, she's not, she's not going to change. And sometimes we do go in with those beliefs. There, there's an old story, and I forget where it came from, but there's a traveler who is wandering towards a new city, and, and he sees somebody, and he asks about the city and what the people are like. And, and the, the person says to the traveler, well, what were the people like where you came from? And they said, oh, they were mean, and they never helped. And he said, that's exactly how these people are here. Another traveler comes along and, and asks the same question, what are the people like? And he goes, well, what were the people like where you came from? And he said, they were so kind and outgoing and helpful. And he said, that's exactly how the people are in that town. And, and it's, the, the point is you, you will get what you look for. You, I love that. Yeah, it's that. She smiled at the world and the world smiled back at her. <laughs> when I, the first time I ever went to Paris, I had a lot of family members and friends say, oh my gosh, watch out. The French aren't very friendly. And, and I had such a different experience than that. I mean, I, it's funny that trip was such an interesting time in my life and I was by myself and I was so excited and wide eyed and was smiling everywhere I went. And so not surprisingly, that's the reaction I got from a lot of, a lot of French people that I connected with. And that taps, that also taps a little bit into reciprocity in that the behavior that we give to people quite often is the behavior that we're going to get back. So if we want trust and cooperation and positive things from people, we have to be the first to give trust and cooperation. If we want them to smile at us, we should smile at them first. There, it's a natural human tendency to want to give back that form of behavior that we have first received. But Quite often, people are always waiting for somebody else to make the first move, and that's the wrong way to go about it. Yeah, we just have to have the courage and the initiative enough to take the first step, model the way, which can be hard. That's vulnerable, you know, right? That takes that's risky and that's vulnerable. And there will be some people who don't reciprocate, but they probably don't reciprocate to other people. But if you do that with enough people, you really begin to multiply your resources. Uh, Zig Ziglar used to say, you can get everything you want in life if you will just help enough other people get what they want. He knew that in giving and helping people, they would naturally want to give. You help enough other people, you build an army of followers who will do what you want when you need their help. Well, that's that whole point too about, you know, don't, it's not about getting people to like you. It's about your liking and serving others. 
And so it's not about giving to get, it's giving because you realize it's the best way to live life. And, and yes, you, you get the gratification of feeling good that, that you've given, but you also start to realize all these people that I've helped, they are willing to help me if and when I need it. I just need to understand who are the right people with the right skill sets, and I can feel comfortable going back. And it's a, it just, they feel good in, in returning the favor. Absolutely. Power of reciprocity. Well, I, there's so many things I'm taking from our conversation, but my, my two key takeaways are this most recent point you've made about, it's about how much you like people wanting what's best for them. So shifting from how do I get this person to like me to really focus on how can I create connection and getting to know the people that I'm trying to influence. And then the other key takeaway was just those, the, the checklist for ethical persuasion. I mean, it's, it's such a simple thing that we can filter all situations through, being truthful, looking for win-wins, and using psychology that's natural to the situation. Yeah, that's good. Brian, thank you so much for sharing those insights and for the work that you're doing. Oh, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. It's always enjoyable to have a conversation like this, and it's great when people listen and, and get something out of it that they hadn't known before, but it makes a positive impact at work or at home. And it's affirming. It's so affirming. So if our listeners want to connect with you, Brian, what is the best way to do that? Best way would be through LinkedIn. If they reach out to me and they don't say, hey, I heard you on the podcast, then expect that you'll get a, a message back from me thanking them for connecting, but asking, how did you find me? I like to understand how people are, are finding me or why they're reaching out to connect. But I think social media should be social. And so when they respond, usually there's a little banter back and forth. They can get to know a little bit about me and I can know a little about them. And I like to, I like to know the people I'm connected to. That's good. It sounds like you're modeling the, all the things you just talked about. I, I try. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast to never miss a being at work story. 